Welcome to a special podcast of Hong Kong Stories. I'm the producer, Rachel Smith. This special Hong Kong Stories Presents show was put together by our creative director, Janita Smith, and was performed in May 2017. This is the second half of a two-part show. Like all of our shows at Hong Kong Stories, the stories are true first-person stories and were performed without notes in front of a live audience at the Fringe Club in Hong Kong. Unlike our regular shows, though, this show's a little different. You will find the stories shorter, in some cases fragments of stories, broken up and interwoven to create a picture of a day. This show had a theme of time. We called it 24-7, Times of Our Lives. And it travels through 24 hours of a day. It's the minutes and hours that connect these stories, stories which happen in different countries, different decades, and even different time zones. This podcast is also a little longer than our usual podcasts, and the speakers you will hear are Austin, Sheridan, Tracy, Janita, Yuri, Kristen, Rachel, and Hillary. So sit back and relax while we tell you a story. 7.30 p.m. Better late than never. I had already canceled on myself about half a dozen times. I thought, I, I got it. I've got to go. So, no, you can't. I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. You really should go. I'm, I, I don't think I can go. I don't think I can go. I heard, heard about this teaching that was being given by this Tibetan master of the Nyingma tradition. And he was going to talk about something he titled the pristine mind and how it was a place in your own mind that you could go to. And I thought, I think I, I, think I need that because I was working I am working at this job, which is just so completely oppressive. It's this uh, pairing of intense focus and futility, kind of just joined together. <laughs> and you'd work through these mountains of paperwork, and as you excavated this mountain of paperwork, another one would slowly be building next to you. And it was just this endless process. The only kind of break from this monotony was that I would go for lunch or dinner at the, the Pret, that sandwich place that's just, just down the street. And it felt like it was more going to receive my feeding units at Pret. I would just run out, kind of gnaw my way through a sandwich, and then go back to my desk to process more for about six or seven hours. And then it was, again, time to have more feeding units. And, it wasn't even the work that was ultimately getting to me. It was just, I felt like I'm becoming like 85%, 90% pret. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just sort of some subatomic rearrangement of, a, of, of mushroom soups and, and falafel roll-ups. You know, I, I, can, I can be more than pret. I, I want to be more, and I, can, I could have a pristine mind, so I just left the lights on at my desk and I, I bolted. I went to Wang Chak Hung, where an artist had opened her home, a studio, a kind of loft space for this master. And there he was, sitting in his robes. I took my place before him with the other, other people who had gathered there to hear his teaching. And he started talking about the pristine mind. And he said, you know, we can think, I can ask you, do you clean your house? And of course you do, maybe once a week, maybe every day. But we all clean our house. But how many of us clean our minds? This is what meditation is. It is the cleaning 
of your own mind. And that sounded very convincing. You know, he was started talking about how there was a boundlessness in your mind, a spaciousness, uninflected by your own likes and dislikes, without the weight of your own personal judgments that you lug around with you. He said, the world is full of delight, charm, beauty, and mystery. But so often, our eyes are clouded and we cannot see it. But if we work with the pristine mind, with training and devotion, we too may find this openness and this spaciousness and clarity. And I thought I could almost see it. I thought I could almost experience it from what he was saying. It was said with such conviction and truth. And then uh, the next part was a group of his students came out and they were wearing Indian saris and they did a dance and it was all very elegant and beautiful and his, what looked like his principal student was in the middle, was a, a Western American, West, Western Chinese woman and uh, she was very poised and graceful and then they kind of wrapped it up, everyone applauded and then they went off to the side from the front, this main front hall. And then the next part was supposed to be he was going to deliver this kind of blessing for everybody. And he needed these blessing books and he didn't have them. And his student was supposed to fetch them for him. And so he made conversation. He took some questions and he started getting a little uh, impatient. He said, where, where, where is she? And so some, one of the other students went back to the side and they said, uh, they went to look for her. And she called out in kind of a, what I feel was a east-west disconnect way. She said, uh, she said she'll be out soon. You should just go ahead. <laughs> and you could see he was sort of semi-stunned by this. And so he calmed himself and continued to talk to the other students. But then you could see it was blessing time. It was blessing time. And she said, please find out what, where is she? What is she doing? And then another student went back there. And he came back and she said, oh, they're, they're taking pictures. And there was something about the idea of him needing to perform a ceremony, a blessing in the front of house, and the students taking selfies in the back of house, that you could see got him, he was, he was riled, but he was monk riled. So he was, he just, he, he, he said a little bit curtly, you know, you, you, you tell her to come here, no, no, no. And um, they left this hanging awkwardness in the air that I can only call boundless and spacious. <laughs> and they, so much so that the, the hostess of the evening felt compelled to say, mystery, world's full of mystery, charm, <laughs> beauty, beauty. And pretty soon the student came rushing out and brought the blessing books. The blessing was delivered. It was spectacular. And, uh, and the evening concluded. And it was uh, interesting to see someone like this, how he so naturally slipped into agitation. And, and I thought maybe, you know, he does look like he cleans his house a lot, but did he ever consider redesign? <laughs> did he ever think about some simple redecoration, like a new kitchen countertop, or maybe a deck in the back, or some solar panels on the roof? But I did not think that he was a fraud. I did not feel that this was a gotcha moment. I just felt instead reassured and somewhat relieved that if someone of his, his standing caliber and lineage 
could have a bad blessing day, then <laughs> that meant uh, that the, for the rest of us, we're going to do all right. I'm stuck at the office. I've been there all day. No food, no time to eat. I can't even go for a swim. I have to finish this story before I can go get anything to eat. And I realize someone has brought me a bag of these lollipops. You know, the kinds with the plastic straw and they're hollow in the middle. They're in my drawer. I rip one open, put it in my mouth. Type, 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 type. But suddenly, the candy breaks apart like a thin shell. And I don't know what's going on. I feel this tingling in my mouth, but I don't want to stop typing. So I open my mouth and I realize there are ants running up the side of my face into my hair. Ten thirty seven PM Out of Time. The first time I saw the future, I was eight years old. We lived in a two story colonial house about an hour outside of New York City, and it was the nineteen eighties. Looking back now, at around the same age that my parents probably were then, I am sure the entire thing was cocaine and key parties. <laughs> Michael Jackson's thriller had just come out. And we listened to it on compact disc players, which had just been invented. And everybody walked around wearing pleated front leather pants. My brother and I once sat down and tried to come up with words to describe this time in our lives. And we settled on the crisp autumn anorexia of our suburban nouveau riche, which we thought also would be a good name for a band. <laughs> anyway, the second story of our house had an open banister so my brother and I could lay down on the beige carpet and we could look through the railing straight through to our entrance foyer. We could see the brass chandelier and the paisley wallpaper and the ornate knockered red painted front door. It was a Friday night and my parents' friends, the Levitts, had been over for dinner with their children. It was a Friday night, the Jewish Sabbath, Shabbat. If you're religious, it starts at sundown and it signals the beginning of a day of rest and of prayer and of reflection. If you're not religious, like us, it begins at sundown and it signals the beginning of happy hour. <laughs> and that really is my memory of all those childhood Shabbats. My parents' friends milling around the living room holding wine glasses like goblets with two hands and they'd be filled with ice cubes and brimming with mass market rosé. This particular Friday night, dinner had drawn to a close. It was around 10 o'clock, and my mother was seeing the Levitts out. But you could tell, none of the adults really wanted the party to be over. They moved slowly, and they threw their heads back, laughing. My brother and I looked down on the scene, and we willed it. Just go. We were tired, and the Leverett's kids must have been tired too. Finally, 
Mrs. Levitt turned. She waggled her acrylic nails at my mother. She blew her a kiss. And she turned, and she herded her children out into the darkness. And it really was dark outside. It was pitch black because we lived in the suburbs. And my mother must have realized this, and she reached to turn the lights on on the driveway so Mrs. Levitt could get her kids into the car. And as she reached, Mr. Levitt reached too, but he reached for her body, and he pulled my mother to him, and they stood there, pressed against each other, smiling. I was eight years old, and I was looking down on my mother holding Mr. Levitt the same way she held my dad. I turned my head towards my brother to see if he was also watching this, and if his heart was beating, and if his eyes were wide. But if I was eight, then my brother was six, and he had a toy fire truck, and he was just running it up and down the banister, not paying attention. I turned back to the foyer, and I saw that my mom and Mr. Levitt hadn't moved an inch. Just go. Mr. Levitt has to leave. I willed it with every cell in my body. Mr. Levitt has to go far, far, far away. I never want him to come back to this house. I never want to see Mr. Levitt again. And two weeks later, Mr. Levitt dropped dead while he was jogging. <laughs> the man had been a lifetime athlete. He was a marathon runner. And yet, he dropped dead on the side of a country road. So I guess that's less like seeing the future and more knowing that I had caused it, which is a strange power for a kid like me. I mean, this child of, of boxed wine, swilling Jews, we weren't particularly religious. We never sacrificed for our faith. I mean, the most we ever did was throw around a few Yiddish words and go to other people's bat mitzvah parties. And yet, God had listened, and I had assassinated Mr. Levitt with <laughs> just my thoughts. So, something like that. Good and evil, and ice cubes, and happy hour. And to this day, that's still how I practice my religion, with a raised glass and a terrible bottle of light pink wine. It's late. And like every other 19-year-old wannabe actor, I've just returned from doing a shift washing dishes at the local steakhouse. It's a stinking job, literally. But it only fuels my desperation to find something, anything that will kickstart my career. On the way home, I've bought a copy of The Stage, which is the weekly theatrical newspaper. And I'm rifling through the pages trying to find the job section. I'm not expecting anything fantastic, anything spectacular. Not a West End role or a part in a movie, but maybe a local theatre is looking for somebody for a summer show. And then I see it. And I'm amazed and confused. It's a full box ad, and it's got a border and everything. And it says, 19-year-old female actor looking for work, will consider anything. And then my name <laughs> and my phone number. 
and I have no idea how it got there. And then I realize my bloody mother, my bloody most supportive mother that you could ever imagine has decided to help me and my career by announcing to the entire theatrical world that I will consider anything <laughs> for a job. A bloody killer. Uh, 11 o'clock to bed, that might sound kind of boring actually, but I've had a hearty home-cooked meal, uh, tinkered around in the workshop for a little while, and then I've had that kind of, you know, settle down hour or so on the sofa reading a book. Uh, I brush my teeth, I, I gargle, snuggle in under that warm duvet, and you know, I've got eight hours of solid, blissful sleep ahead, but the thing is, I'm already thinking about that buzzer sounding at seven in the morning in that cold, cold, dark Canadian winter, and you know, I'm back to planning my escape. I could be in Seoul, Tokyo, I could be in Singapore, I could be in Hong Kong. What the hell am I doing in the depths of winter in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada? Twelve forty-three. Time is of the essence. I am climbing a ladder in the middle of the night at my high school to vandalize a building. <laughs> I don't know why I agreed to this. I'm with three of my closest friends, more adventurous friends. We're carrying on a tradition maintained over the years by other self-selecting groups of friends at the start of their senior year. We are painting our graduation year on the roof of the large equipment shed at our school's football field. The roof is the focal point of the field. It faces the spectator stands and is visible from the street. Painting the roof is part art, part graffiti. It's also a badge of honor for the students who pull it off, an unofficial illegal badge of honor. This night is the culmination of careful planning. As with all premeditated crimes, Timing is crucial. If we strike too many days before the start of school, we lose the dramatic effect. If we wait too long, someone else will beat us to it. We've selected the optimal night. We wear dark clothes because that's what criminals on TV wear. <laughs> and like those criminals, we all play a role. Juliet is the logistics coordinator. We'd hidden our equipment in her family's garage, and her silver hatchback is our getaway car. Judy is the comedian. I am the worrier. Our leader is Tracy. She's an artist, key for painting, and a gymnast, key for balancing on a sloped roof. When I have trouble hoisting myself from the ladder onto the roof, she takes my hand and guides me. The school has painted over the previous class year, 
So Tracy uses the roof shingles as a guide and outlines our graduation year in white paint. We fill in the giant numbers with orange paint. Orange and black are school colors. We had the paint mixed at the hardware store a few days ago to ensure just the right shade. We might be criminals, but we take pride in our work. <laughs> we work quietly and efficiently without our usual banter. It's a completely different experience up there alone in the dark. The football field is usually so loud and chaotic and bright, but now I can hear only crickets and the sounds of our shoes scraping against the rough roof. We've been painting for a while when a car drives slowly into the parking lot. I freeze and flatten myself against the roof. Has a neighbor heard us and called the police? Did the silver hatchback in the empty parking lot attract attention? Will getting arrested prevent me from getting into college? I realize that I don't know what happened to the students who did this in past years. I don't know if any of them got caught and got in trouble. I don't know how serious a crime semi-school-sanctioned vandalism actually is. My heart is racing, and my breath is fast and shallow. I am not cut out for criminal life. The car makes a slow sweep of the parking lot and drives away. Rattled by this reminder of the risks we're taking, I paint faster. My arms are getting tired, and my back is becoming sore. By the time we finish, the sun is starting to brighten the sky. It's time for us to go. As I climb slowly down the ladder, I notice a white wedge of wall tucked under the roof on the backside of the shed. Maybe it's the lack of sleep. Maybe it's the sense of accomplishment. Maybe it's stupidity. But we don't just tag our work with our initials or street names like normal vandals. No, we paint our names on that wall. <laughs> and then we walk to the middle of the football field to admire our work. I am a criminal and I am proud. In university, I went to hear a lecture once by this uh, professor of political philosophy, and he opened his talk, the prelude to his talk, were these 3 a.m. in the morning, qu existential questions. I don't remember what the talk is about anymore. I'm sure it's something huge and uh, unresolvable and still probably unresolved today, but this uh, lead-in was so good that I still remember it. He talked about this 3 a.m time when we're unsuspecting and unguarded and our global angst huddled together with our personal anxieties and they decide to come visit and they rob you. They rob you of your rest and composure. And I remember at the time thinking, I, I, don't, I don't know what he's talking about because if I'm up at 3 a.m., I want to be. I'm watching a triple feature movie or hang out with friends and what questions, you know? May, maybe the only question was, do you, do you think we can still get pizza now? Or, or, <laughs> or, 
And, uh, and I thought, who, who lies awake at that hour thinking about the unsolvable? Uh, but now, it's almost 35 years later, and I know who they are, and I know what they think about. Four o two a.m. Time's gone by. I had never actually thought about becoming a surrogate mother until I was asked by my neighbor Johnny one day. Johnny Willard was awesome. He was old, as old as dirt, and he had a squint, and he made his living by hunting and fishing and trapping and a little bit of farming. He lived alone, well, with 12 hunting dogs in a house, and he never seemed to do housework. I thought he was pretty cool. But not as cool as I thought he was when one day he presented me with a newly hatched baby duck. It had a birth defect, which made it hard to walk without falling over and needed to be hand-raised. I was in love. I brought that little duck home. It had it, it was still yellow and fluffy because it hadn't grown its proper adult feathers yet. Ducks stay fluffy for a good two or three weeks. Its stumpy little arms, a little orange beak, his toes turned in so when he walked he had the cutest little waddle. He looked at me with his little black beady eyes and went, cheep, cheep, cheep. So I called him Cheeper because <laughs> I'm really good at names. <laughs> now my parents... Uh, we're raising five children on a farm, so they had a high tolerance for impromptu pets. My mother laid down the law. She said, all right, you can keep the duck, but no getting on the table during dinner time. You've got to take care of it. No letting him loose all the time to run around on his own. He's too small. Somebody will step on him. Um, you can let him swim in the sink, but if you make a mess, you've got to clean it up yourself. And then she got me a fantastic little cardboard fruit basket with a handle for him to sleep in, or to sit in, and a tea towel to make him more comfortable. She said, now he's, he's to sleep in this at night, because I don't want him running all over the bed. I made that quilt, and it's really nice. I said, sure, I'd do all those things. It was going to be great. Cheaper and I had a fantastic day. Went out for little waddles on the lawn together. I told my brothers they weren't allowed to play with them because they were too rough. He'd look at me with his little eyes and say, cheep, cheep, cheep. And I just knew we were going to be the best of friends forever. That night, my mother tucked us all in, individually, one by one, room by room. She goes and she gives us a kiss and she pulls the covers up, says good night, listens to our prayers. When it's my turn, she even gave Cheaper a kiss on the beak when I insisted. She listened to my prayers and then she said goodnight and closed the door on her way out. <sighs> I laid down to go to sleep. But then I heard, cheep, cheep, cheep. And I thought, looking over the side of the bed, he looked a little bit lonely. Maybe he needs his mummy. So I took the whole basket onto the bed next to me and I wrapped my arms around it and I fell into a delicious deep sleep. The next morning, I woke up. I was so excited, ready to go and play with my new duck. But he wasn't in the basket. I looked around the bed 
I didn't see him. I looked under the bed. He wasn't there. Surely he couldn't get off the bed with his stumpy little legs. And then I untangled the sheets from around me where they tangled up during the flailings of the night. And there, as flat as a pancake and just as dead, was cheaper. I was no longer a mother. I was a murderer. a.m. Time waits for no one. Or does it? If a train leaves Irkutsk, Russia, at 6.28 p.m. on a Saturday, headed west at a speed of 50 miles per hour, en route to Ekaterinburg, traveling backward in time across five time zones, mind you, stopping about 15 times, with most stops lasting about 10 minutes and a few of them lasting about an hour... What time of what day will it be when the train arrives in Ekaterinburg? Anyone? Anyone? I don't know either. (laughs) We're on the Trans-Siberian Railroad, making the 5,000-mile-long journey from Beijing, China, to St. Petersburg, Russia. On a narrow bunk below me is Megan. Megan's a high school science teacher, and her scientific prowess is put to good use keeping track of all of our passports and a very sophisticated running tally of who has spent what in what currency, Chinese, Mongolian, and Russian. Across from Megan, a mere 20 inches away, is Lucy. Lucy's a high school English teacher, and she's dutifully reading Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment (laughs) along the journey. Above Lucy is Gina. Gina's also a high school English teacher, and she's reading Truman Capote's In Cold Blood. Across from Gina and above Megan is me. And I'm the only idiot who didn't bring an e-reader of sorts. Instead, I have lugged aboard three heavy monocle magazines, one audible version of Anna Karenina, which I didn't download properly, so I only have two chapters, and the book The Big Red Train Ride by Eric Newby, a British journalist who made the same Trans-Siberian railway trip in the 1970s. But I'm having trouble connecting to, the, to his story because he made his trip in winter, and currently it's mid-June. Also, he started in Moscow going east toward Vladivostok, and we are headed west, and at the moment, in the middle of Siberia. Yesterday, at 6.28 p.m., we left Irkutsk, a city in Russia. We're meant to be on the train two full days and about 2,000 miles until we arrive at our next stop, Ekaterinburg, still in Russia. Passing time in train life, as opposed to airplane life, is very flexible. I can sit, stand, walk whenever I like. All I have to do is gingerly sit up on my top bunk so as not to hit my head on the little shelf above me, and then carefully find the foothold, which serves as a sort of ladder to get down. And I do have to make sure not to step on Megan's legs, because I have to use her bottom bunk as part of my ladder system to get down. Once I'm on the floor, I can turn a full 360 degrees between Megan and Lucy's bunks. One way to pass the time was to take a walk. Our walks only had one destination, the dining car. To get there, we would traverse through eight other train carriages, dodge 20 sets of Russian men's feet dangling from upper bunks along the way, 
and carefully not squash the smoking Russians who are gathered in the vestibule sections that link one carriage to the next. This is such an effortless journey that we only do it once a day. I'm getting restless and I'm starting to panic that I could run out of entertainment long before we reach Ekaterinburg. I'll have a snack. I think it's lunchtime anyway. Oh, that's right. Later today, there's going to be a long stop where we can actually get off the train and stretch our legs. The stop should last about 45 minutes. According to the guidebook, the stop should happen at about 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon. But is that 2.30 local time or 2.30 Moscow time? Because all the trains run on Moscow time, no matter where you are in Russia. Since I have to ration the last bits of reading and listening entertainment I have, I'm gonna put my mind to better use and figure out what time it is. My watch is set to Irkutsk time, but that was yesterday. The trains don't have internet, so our phones don't automatically update. I have a plan. Gina and I have nearly mastered the Russian alphabet. The next station we pull into, she and I will valiantly try to read the station name, then go down the hall and check the schedule that's posted in the hallway, figure out which station we have just left, figure out what time it was when we left, and then figure out how many more stops there are to go until the long stop and ultimately at Katerinburg. The station is coming. After a few lazy afternoons of me studying the Russian alphabet in our guidebook and Gina making actual flashcards, together we can fluently read Russian at the speed of a kindergartner reading words for the first time. Okay, here we go. It's two words. I only focused on the second word and sadly so did Gina. We didn't, <laughs> we didn't have our strategy worked out yet. Okay. Stant Sia. Wait, isn't that the same second word from the previous station? Oh God, we've just sounded out the word station. <laughs> the station name had two words, the town name and station. We've missed the town name. Never mind. I'm just going to eat something and take a nap instead. When I wake up from my nap, I'm expecting and hoping to see something different, something as a marker of time having gone by, a mountain perhaps, a clearing in the dense birch trees, a different style of wooden Siberian house in the distance. No, it all looks exactly the same as when I fell asleep. Even the daylight is the same. I mean, it's mid-June. It's almost the longest day of sunlight of the year. And since we're traveling backward across the time zones, we're literally going back in time. It's like the slow speed of the train is equal to the slow speed of the sun, making it plausible that we're not moving at all. <laughs> is time even going by? When are we going to get there? Somewhere, anywhere, the long stop, Ekaterinburg. When are we going to get off this train? Eventually, the long stop comes and goes. I don't know what time it was, local time, Moscow time, but it felt in my bones like it was about 5 p.m. Our walk to the dining car comes and goes. We're still not to the destination. Dinner conversation takes a melancholy turn as we start to brainstorm all the things we're going to do when we arrive in Ekaterinburg. 
I'm just excited to go to the bathroom at my own free will, rather than strategically timing my urinations according to the train schedule of when the bathroom is unlocked. As evening becomes nighttime, I try once more to read my train book. But I'm still struggling with the author's descriptions of Western Russian cities and all the snow he sees out the window. I'm not in the West yet, and there's no snow in June. As my train gets nearer and nearer to Ekaterinburg in real life, so does his train in the book. I'm going to quit the book. I don't need to read on because the book is going to go on to describe Siberia, the region I have just left. Arriving in Ekaterinburg symbolizes crossing from the Asian side of Russia to the European side of Russia. I'm moving on. And my train is stopping, finally. After a long day of this battle, ladies versus time, in the end, time, or rather the train schedule won. We were defeated, and we looked it too. We had been on the train for 48 real travel hours, plus three hours of time zone change, plus the long stops, two or three hours, give or take, plus the short stops, increments of 10 minutes, about 10 times a day. We had been on the train for 57 hours. We had moved, hours had passed, but time really did stand still. Thanks for listening to the second half of our special Hong Kong Stories Presents show, 24-7, Times of Our Lives. The first half is also available on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you want to know more about learning to tell great stories, visit us on hongkongstories.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to share it with your friends. And if you're lucky enough to be in Hong Kong, grab yourself some tickets for our next live show. Details can be found on the website. Everyone has a story to tell. <laughs>